Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somehow. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked Isn't drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? Today, you? What's the secret? Beyond the Door by Paul Souter You haven't told me yet how it happened, I said to Mrs. Malkin. She set her lips and eyed me sharply. Didn't you talk with the coroner, sir? Yes, of course, I admitted. But as I understand, you found my uncle. I thought... Well, I wouldn't care to say anything about it, she interrupted with decision. This housekeeper of my uncle's was somewhat taller than I, and much heavier, two physical preponderances which afford any woman possessing them an advantage over the inferior male. She appeared a subject for diplomacy rather than argument. Noting her ample jaw, her breadth of cheek, the unsentimental glint of her eye, I decided on conciliation. I placed a chair for her, there in my Uncle Godfrey's study, and dropped into another myself. At least, before we go over the other parts of the house, suppose we rest a little, I suggested in my most unctuous manner. The place rather gets on one's nerves, don't you think so? It was sheer luck, I claim no credit for it. My chance reflection found the weak spot in her fortifications. She replied to it with an undoubted smack of satisfaction. It's more than seven years that I've been doing for Mr. Sarson, sir, bringing him his meals, regulars, clockwork, keeping the house clean, as clean as he let me, and sleeping at my own home at nights. And in all that time, I've said over and over, there ain't a house in New York the equal of this for queerness. Nor anywhere else, I encouraged her with a laugh. And her confidence has opened another notch. You're likely right in that too, sir. As I've said to poor Mr. Sarson many a time, it's all well enough, says I, to have bugs for a hobby. You can afford it. And being a bachelor and by yourself, you don't have to consider other people's likes and dislikes. And it's all well enough, if you want to, says I, to keep thousands and thousands of them in cabinets all over the place, the way you do. But when it comes to pinning them on the walls in regular armies, says I, and on the ceiling of your own study, and even on different parts of the furniture, so that a body don't know what awful thing she's going to find under her hand of a sudden when she does the dusting. Why then, I says to him, it's driving a decent woman too far. And did he never try to reform his ways when you told him that? I asked, smiling. To be frank with you, Mr. Robinson, when I talk like that to him, he generally raised my pay. And what can a body do then? I can't see how Lucy Lawton stood the place as long as she did, I observed, watching Mrs. Malkin's red face very closely. She swallowed the bait and leaned forward, hands on knees. Poor girl. It got on her nerves, but she was the quiet kind. You never saw her, sir. I shook my head. One of them slim, faded girls with light hair and hardly a word to say for herself. I don't believe she got to know the next-door neighbor. In the whole year she lived with your uncle. She was an orphan, wasn't she, sir? Yes, I said. Godfrey Sarston and I were her only living relatives. That was why she came from Australia to stay with him after her father's death. Mrs. Malkin nodded. I was hoping that by putting a check on my eagerness I could lead her on to a number of things I greatly desired to know. Up to the time I had induced the housekeeper to show me through this strange house of my Uncle Godfrey's, 
The whole affair had been a mystery of lips which closed and faces which were averted at my approach. Even the coroner seemed unwilling to tell me just how my uncle had died. Did you understand she was going to live with him, sir? asked Mrs. Malkin, looking hard at me. I confined myself to a nod. Well, so did I. Yet, after a year, back she went. She went suddenly, I suggested. So suddenly that I never knew a thing about it till after she was gone. I came the next and she had started back to Australia. That's how sudden she went. They must have had a falling out, I conjectured. I suppose it was because of the house. Maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't. You know of other reasons? I have eyes in my head, she said, but I'm not going to talk about it. Shall we be getting on now, sir? I tried another lead. I hadn't seen my uncle in five years, you know. He seemed terribly changed. He was not an old man by any means. Yet when I saw him at the funeral, I paused expectantly. To my relief, she responded readily. He looked that way for the last few months, especially the last week. I spoke to him about it two days before, before it happened, sir, and told him he'd do well to see the doctor again. But he cut me off short. My sister took sick the same day and I was called out of town. The next time I saw him, he was... She paused and then went on sobbing. To think of him lying there in that awful place and calling and calling for me as I know he must, and me not around to hear him. As she stopped again, suddenly, and threw a suspicious glance at me, I hastened to insert a matter-of-fact question. Did he appear ill on that last day? Not so much ill as... Yes, I prompted. She was silent a long time. While I waited, afraid that some word of mine had brought back her former attitude of hostility, then she seemed to make up her mind. I oughtn't to say another word. I've said too much already, but you've been liberal with me, sir, and I know something you've a right to be told, which I'm thinking no one else is going to tell you. Look at the bottom of his study door a minute, sir. I followed her direction. What I saw led me to drop to my hands and knees the better to examine it. Why should he put a rubber strip on the bottom of his door, I asked, getting up. She replied with another enigmatical suggestion. Look at these, if you will, sir. You remember that he slept in his study. That was his bed over there in the alcove. Bolts, I exclaimed, and I reinforced sight with a touch by shooting one of them back and forth a few times. Double bolts on the inside of his bedroom door. An upstairs room at that. What was the idea? Mrs. Malkin portentously shook her head and sighed as one unburdening her mind. Only this can I say, sir. He was afraid of something. Terribly afraid, sir. Something that came in the night. What was it? I demanded. I don't know, sir. It was in the night that it happened, I asked. She nodded, then, as if the prologue were over, as if she had prepared my mind sufficiently, she produced something from under her apron. She must have been holding it there all the time. It's his diary, sir. It was lying here on the floor. I saved it for you before the police could get their hands on it. I opened the little book. One of the sheets near the back was crumpled and I glanced at it idly. What I read there impelled me to slap the covers shut again. Did you read this? I demanded. 
She met my gaze, frankly. I, I looked into it, sir, just as you did, only just looked into it. Not for worlds would I do even that again. I noticed some reference here to a slab in the cellar. What slab is that? It covers an old, dried-up well, sir. Will you show it to me? You can find it for yourself, sir, if you wish. I'm not going down there, she said decidedly. Ah, well, I've seen enough for today, I told her. I'll take the diary back to my hotel and read it. I did not return to my hotel, however. In my one brief glance into the little book, I had seen something which had bitten into my soul. Only a few words, but they had brought me very near to that queer, solitary man who had been my uncle. I dismissed Mrs. Malkin and remained in the study. There was the fitting place to read the diary he had left behind him. His personality lingered like a vapor in that study. I settled into his deep Morris chair and turned it to catch the light from the single narrow window, the light, doubtless, by which he had written much of his work on entomology. That same struggling illumination played shadowy tricks with hosts of wall-crucified insects which seemed engaged in a united effort to crawl upward in sinuous lines. Some of their number, impaled to the ceiling itself, peered quiveringly down on the aspiring multitude. The whole house, with its crisp, dead rustling in any vagrant breeze, brought back to my mind the hand that had pinned them, one by one, on wall and ceiling and furniture. A kindly hand, I reflected, though eccentric, one not to be turned aside from its single hobby. When quiet-peering Uncle Godfrey went, there passed out another of those scientific enthusiasts whose passion for exact truth in some one direction has extended the bounds of human knowledge. Could not his unquestioned merits have been balanced against his sin? Was it necessary to even-handed justice that he die face to face with horror, struggling with the thing he most feared? I pondered the question still, though his body, strangely bruised, has been long at rest. The entries in that little book began with the 15th of June. Everything before that date had been torn out. There, in the room where it had been written, I read my Uncle Godfrey's diary. I am trembling so that the words will hardly form under my pen, but my mind is collected. My course was for the best. Suppose I had married her. She would have been unwilling to live in this house. At the outset, her wishes would have come between me and my work, and that would have only been the beginning. As a married man, I could not have concentrated properly. I could not have surrounded myself with the atmosphere indispensable to the writing of my book. My scientific message would never have been delivered. As it is, though my heart is sore, I shall stifle these memories and work. I wish I had been more gentle with her, especially when she sank to her knees before me tonight. She kissed my hand. I should not have repulsed her so roughly. In particular, my words could have been better chosen. I said to her bitterly, Get up and don't nuzzle my hand like a dog. She rose without a word and left me. How was it to know that within an hour? I am largely to blame. Yet, had I taken any other course afterward than the one I did, the authorities would have misunderstood. Again, there followed a space from which the sheets had been torn, but from the 16th of July all the pages were intact. 
Something had come over the writing, too. It was still precise and clear, my Uncle Godfrey's characteristic hand, but the letters were less firm. As the entries approached the end, this difference became still more marked. Here follows, then, the whole of his story, or as much of it as will ever be known. I shall let his words speak for him without further interruption. My nerves are becoming more seriously affected. If certain annoyances do not shortly cease, I shall be obliged to procure medical advice. To be more specific, I find myself at times obsessed by an almost uncontrollable desire to descend to the cellar and lift the slab over the old well. I have never yielded to the impulse, but it has persisted for minutes together with such intensity that I have had to put work aside and literally hold myself down in my chair. This insane desire comes only in the dead of night, when its disquieting effect is heightened by the various noises peculiar to the house. For instance, there often is a draft of air along the hallways which causes a rustling among the specimens impaled on the walls. Lately, too, there have been other nocturnal sounds, strongly suggestive of the busy clamor of rats and mice. This calls for investigation. I have been at considerable expense to make the house proof against rodents which might destroy some of my best specimens. If some structural defect has opened a way for them, the situation must be corrected at once. July 17th. The foundations and cellar were examined today by a workman. He states positively that there is no place of ingress for rodents. He contented himself with looking at the slab over the old well without lifting it. July 19th. While I was sitting in this chair late last night writing, the impulse to descend to the cellar suddenly came upon me with tremendous insistence. I yielded, which perhaps was as well, for at least I satisfied myself that the disquiet which possesses me has no external cause. The long journey through the hallways was difficult. Several times I was keenly aware of the same sounds. Perhaps I should say the same impressions of sounds that I had erroneously laid to rats. I am convinced now that they are mere symptoms of my nervous condition. Further indications of this came in the fact that as I opened the cellar door, the small noises abruptly ceased. There was no final scamper of tiny footfalls to suggest rats disturbed at their occupations. Indeed, I was conscious of a certain impression of expectant silence, as if the thing behind the noises, whatever it was, had paused to watch me enter its domain. Throughout my time in the cellar, I seemed surrounded by the same atmosphere. Sheer nerves, of course. In the main, I held myself well under control, as I was about to leave the cellar, however, I unguardedly glanced back over my shoulder at the stone slab covering the old well. At that, a violent tremor came over me, and losing all command, I rushed back up the cellar stairs, thence to this study. My nerves were playing me sorry tricks. July 30th For more than a week, all has been well. The tone of my nerves seems distinctly better. 
Mrs. Malkin, who has remarked several times lately upon my paleness, expressed the conviction this afternoon that I am nearly my old self again. This is encouraging. I was beginning to fear that the severe strain for the past few months had left an indelible mark upon me. With continued health, I shall be able to finish my book by spring. July 31st. Mrs. Malkin remained rather late tonight in connection with some items of housework, and it was quite dark when I returned to my study from bolting the street door after her. The blackness of the upper hall, which the former owner of the house inexplicably failed to wire for electricity, was profound. As I came to the top of the second flight of stairs, something clutched at my foot and for an instant almost pulled me back. I freed myself and ran to the study. August 3rd. Again, the awful insistence. I sit here with this diary upon my knee and it seems that fingers of iron are tearing at me. I will not go. My nerves may be utterly unstrung again. I fear they are but I am still their master. August 4th. I did not yield last night. After a bitter struggle, which must have lasted nearly an hour, the desire to go to the cellar suddenly departed. I must not give in at any time. August 5th. Tonight, the rat noises, I shall call them that for want of a more appropriate term, are very noticeable. I went to the length of unbolting my door and stepping into the hallway to listen. After a few minutes, I seemed to be aware of something large and gray watching me from the darkness at the end of the passage. This is a bizarre statement, of course, but it exactly describes my impression. I withdrew hastily into the study and bolted the door. Now that my nervous condition is so palpably affecting the optic nerve, I must not much longer delay in seeing a specialist. But how much shall I tell him? August 8th. Several times tonight, while sitting here at my work, I have seemed to hear soft footsteps in the passage. Nerves again, of course, or else some new trick of the wind among the specimens on the walls. August 9th. By my watch it is four o'clock in the morning. My mind is made up to record the experiences I have passed through. Calmness may come that way. Feeling rather fatigued last night from the strain of a weary day of research, I retired early. My sleep was more refreshing than usual, as it is likely to be when one is genuinely tired. I awakened, however. It must have been an hour ago with a start of tremendous violence. There was moonlight in the room. My nerves were on edge, but for a moment I saw nothing unusual. Then, glancing toward the door, I perceived what appeared to be thin white fingers thrust under it, exactly as if someone outside the door were trying to attract my attention in that manner. I rose and turned on the light, but the fingers were gone. Needless to say, I did not open the door. I write the occurrence down just as it took place, or as it seemed, but I cannot trust myself to comment upon it. August 10th. I have fastened the heavy rubber strips on the bottom of my bedroom door. August 15th. 
all quiet, for several nights. I am hoping that the rubber strips, being something definite and tangible, have had a salutary effect upon my nerves. Perhaps I shall not need to see a doctor. August 17th. Once more, I have been aroused from sleep. The interruptions seem to come always at the same hour, about three o'clock in the morning. I had been dreaming of the well in the cellar. The same dreams, over and over. Everything black, except the slab. And a figure with bowed head and averted face sitting there. Also, I had vague dreams about a dog. Can it be that my last words to her have impressed that on my mind? I, I must pull myself together. In particular, I must not, under any pressure, yield and visit the cellar after nightfall. August 18th. I'm feeling much more hopeful. Mrs. Malkin remarked on it while serving dinner. This improvement is due largely to the consultation I have had with Dr. Sartwell, the distinguished specialist in nervous diseases. I went into full details with him, accepting certain reservations. He scouted the idea that my experiences could be other than purely mental. When he recommended a change of scene, which I had been expecting, I told him positively that it was out of the question. He said then that with the aid of a tonic and an occasional sleeping draft, I am likely to progress well enough at home. This is distinctly encouraging. I erred in not going to him at the start. Without doubt, most, if not all, of my hallucinations could have been averted. I have been suffering a needless penalty from my nerves, an action I took solely in the interests of science. I have no disposition to tolerate it further. From today, I shall report regularly to Dr. Sartwell. August 19th. Used sleeping draft last night, with gratifying results. The doctor says I must repeat the dose for several nights until my nerves are well under control again. August 21st. All well. It seems I found the way out, a very simple and prosaic way. I might have avoided much needless annoyance by seeking expert advice at the beginning. Before retiring last night, I unbolted my study door and took a turn up and down the passage. I felt no trepidation. The place was as it used to be before these fancies assailed me. A visit to the cellar after nightfall will be the test for my complete recovery. But uh, I am not quite ready for that. Patience. August 22nd. I have just read yesterday's entry, thinking to steady myself. It is cheerful, almost gay. And there are other entries like it in preceding pages. I am a mouse in the grip of a cat. Let me have freedom for ever so short a time, and I begin to rejoice at my escape. Then the paw descends again. It is four in the morning, the usual hour. I retired rather late last night after administering the draft. Instead of the dreamless sleep which uh, heretofore has followed the use of the drug, the slumber into which I fell was punctuated by recurrent visions of the slab with the bowed figure upon it. Also, I had one poignant dream in which the dog was involved. At length, I awakened and reached mechanically for the light switch beside my bed. When my hand encountered nothing, I suddenly realized the truth. I was standing in my study, with the other hand upon the doorknob, 
It required only a moment, of course, to find the light and switch it on. I saw then that the bolt had been drawn back. The door was quite unlocked. My awakening must have interrupted me in the very act of opening it. I could hear something moving restlessly in the passage outside the door. August 23rd. I must beware of sleeping at night. Without confiding the fact to Dr. Sartwell, I have begun to take the drug in the daytime. At first, uh, Mrs. Malkin's views on the subject were pronounced, but my explanation of doctor's orders has silenced her. I am awake for breakfast and supper and sleep in the hours between. She is leaving me each evening a cold lunch to be eaten at midnight. August 26th. Several times I have caught myself nodding in my chair. The last time, I am sure that on arousing, I perceive the rubber strip under the door bend inward, as if something were pushing it from the other side. I must not, under any circumstances, permit myself to fall asleep. September 2nd. Mrs. Malkin is to be away because of her sister's illness. I cannot help dreading her absence. Though she is here only in the daytime, even that companionship is very welcome. September 3rd. Let me put this into writing. The mere labor of composition has a soothing influence upon me. God knows I need such an influence now as never before. In spite of all my watchfulness, I fell asleep tonight across my bed. I must have been utterly exhausted. The dream I had was the one about the dog. I was patting the creature's head over and over. I awoke at last to find myself in darkness and in a standing position. There was a suggestion of chill and earthiness in the air. While I was drowsily trying to get my bearings, I became aware that something was nuzzling my hand, as a dog might do. Still saturated with my dream, I was not greatly astonished. I extended my hand to pat the dog's head. That brought me to my senses. I was standing in the cellar. The thing before me was not a dog. I cannot tell how I fled back up the cellar stairs. I know, however, that as I turned, the slab was visible in spite of the darkness with something sitting upon it. All the way up the stairs, hands snatched at my feet. This entry seemed to finish the diary for blank pages followed it, but I remembered the crumpled sheet near the back of the book. It was partly torn out as if a hand had clutched it convulsively. The writing on it, too, was markedly in contrast to the precise, albeit nervous, penmanship of even the last entry I had perused. I was forced to hold the scrawl up to the light to decipher it. This is what I read. My hand keeps on writing in spite of myself. What is this? I do not wish to write, but it compels me. Yes, yes, I will tell the truth. I will tell the truth. A heavy blot followed, partly covering the writing. With difficulty, I made it out. The guilt is mine, mine only. I loved her too well, yet I was unwilling to marry, though she entreated me on her knees, though she kissed my hand. I told her my scientific work came first. She did it herself. I was not expecting that. I swear I was not expecting it but I was afraid the authorities would misunderstand. 
so I took what seemed the best course. She had no friends here who'd inquire. It is waiting outside my door. I feel it. It compels me through my thoughts. My hand keeps writing. I must not fall asleep. I must think only of what I am writing. I, I must. Then came the words I had seen when Mrs. Malkin had handed me the book. They were written very large. In places the pen had dug through the paper. Though they were scrawled, I read them at a glance. Not the slab in the cellar, not that, oh my God, anything but that, anything. By what strange compulsion was the hand forced to write down what was in the brain, even to the ultimate thoughts, even to those final words? The gray light from outside slanting down through two dull little windows sank into the sodden hole near the inner wall. The coroner and I stood in the cellar, but not too near the hole. A small, demonstrative, dark man, the chief of detectives, stood a little apart from us, his eyes intent, his natural animation suppressed. We were watching the stooped shoulders of a police constable who was angling in the well. See anything, Walters? inquired the detective raspingly. The policeman shook his head. The little man turned his questioning to me. I'm afraid there can be no doubt, the coroner confirmed in his heavy, tired voice. He was an old man with lackluster eyes. It had seemed best to me on the whole that he should read my uncle's diary. His position entitled him to all the available facts. What we were seeking in the well might especially concern him. He looked at me opaquely now, while the policeman bent double again. Then he spoke, like one who reluctantly and at last does his duty. He nodded toward the slab of grey stone which lay in the shadow of the left of the well. It doesn't seem very heavy, does it? He suggested in an undertone. I shook my head. Still, it's stone, I demurred. A man would have to be rather strong to lift it. To lift it, yes, he glanced about the cellar. Ah, I forgot, he said abruptly. It's in my office as part of the evidence. He went on half to himself. A man, even though not very strong, could take a stick, for instance the stick that is now in my office, and prop up the slab. If he wished to look into the well, he whispered. The policeman interrupted, straightening again with a groan and laying his electric torch beside the well. It's breaking my back, he complained. There's dirt down there. It seems loose, but I can't get through it. Somebody will have to go down. The detective cut in. I'm lighter than you, Walters. I'm not afraid, sir. I didn't say you were, the little man snapped. There's nothing down there anyway, though we'll have to prove that, I suppose. He glanced truculently at me, but went on talking to the constable. Rig the rope round me, and don't bungle a knot. I've no intention of falling into the place. There is something there, whispered the coroner slowly to me. His eyes left the little detective and the policeman carefully trying and testing knots and turned again to the square slab of stone. Suppose, while a man was looking into that hole, with the stone propped up, he should accidentally knock the prop away. He was still whispering. A stone so light that he could prop it up wouldn't be heavy enough to kill him, I objected. No, he laid a hand on my shoulder. 
not to kill him, to paralyze him, if it struck the spine in a certain way, to render him helpless but not unconscious. The post-mortem would disclose that through the bruises on the body. The policeman and the detective had adjusted the knots to their satisfaction. They were bickering now as to the details of the descent. Would that cause death? I whispered. You must remember that the housekeeper was absent for two days. In two days, even that pressure, he stared at me hard to make sure that I understood. With the head down? Again, the policeman interrupted. I'll stand at the well if you gentlemen will grab the rope behind me and it won't be much of a pull. I'll take the brunt of it. We let the little man down with the electric torch strapped to his waist and some sort of implement, a trowel or a small spade in his hand. It seemed a long time before his voice, curiously hollow, directed us to stop. The hole must have been deep. We braced ourselves. I was second, the coroner last. The policeman relieved his strain somewhat by snagging the rope against the edge of the well, but I marveled, nevertheless, at the ease with which he held the weight. Very little of it came to me. A noise like muffled scratching reached us from below. Occasionally, the rope shook and shifted slightly at the edge of the hollow. At last, the detective's hollow voice spoke. What does he say? the coroner demanded. The policeman turned his square, dogged face toward us. I think he's found something, he explained. The rope jerked and shifted again. Some sort of struggle seemed to be going on below. The weight suddenly increased, and as suddenly lessened as if something had been grasped, then had managed to elude the grasp and slip away. I could catch the detective's rapid breathing now. Also, the sound of inarticulate speech in his hollow voice. The next words I caught came more clearly. They were a command to pull up. At the same moment, the weight on the rope grew heavier and remained so. The policeman's big shoulders began straining rhythmically. All together, he directed. Take it easy. Pull when I do. Slowly the rope passed through our hands. With each fresh grip that we took, a small section of it dropped to the floor behind us. I began to feel the strain. I could tell from the coroner's labored breathing that he felt it more being an old man. The policeman, however, seemed untiring. The rope tightened suddenly, and there was an ejaculation from below, just below. Still holding fast, the policeman contrived to stoop over and look. He translated the ejaculation for us. Let down a little. He stuck with it against the side. We slackened the rope until the detective's voice gave us the word again. The rhythmic tugging continued. Something dark appeared, quite abruptly at the top of the hole. My nerves leapt in spite of me, but it was merely the top of the detective's head, his dark hair. Something white came next, his pale face, with staring eyes. Then his shoulders bowed forward, the better to support what was in his arms. Then I looked away, but as he laid his burden down at the side of the well, the detective whispered to us, He, uh, he had covered her up with dirt, C covered up. He began to laugh, a little high cackle like a child's, until the coroner took him by the shoulders and deliberately shook him. Then. The policeman led him out of the cellar. It was not then, but afterward, that I put my question to the coroner. Tell me, I demanded. People passed there at all hours. Why didn't my uncle call for help? 
I've thought of that, he replied. I believe he did call. I think, probably, he screamed. But his head was down, and he couldn't raise it. His screams must have been swallowed up in the well. You are sure that he didn't murder her? He had given me that assurance before, but I wished it again. Almost sure, he declared, though it was on his account undoubtedly that she killed herself. Few of us are punished as accurately for our sins as he was. One should be thankful, even for crumbs of comfort. I am thankful. But there are times when my uncle's face rises before me. After all, we were of the same blood. Our sympathies had much in common. Under any given circumstances, our thoughts and feelings must have been largely the same. I seem to see him in that final death march along the unlighted passageway, obeying an imperative summons, going on, step by step, down the stairway to the first floor, down the cellar stairs, at last, lifting the slab. I try not to think of that final expiation. Yet, was it final? I wonder, did the last door of all, when it opened, find him willing to pass through? Or was something waiting beyond that door? That was Beyond the Door by Paul Souter, or Joseph Paul Souter, or J. Paul Souter. I don't know very much about this man, this writer. I know all I've been able to find out about him was he was born in 1884, presumably in the US, and died in 1970, presumably in the US. He was an American writer of pulp fiction, active during the 20s and 30s. And he wrote over 200 stories, apparently, which were published in a wide range of magazines. And they tended to be crime stories, mystery stories, shocking stories, weird tales. This one comes from Weird Tales, volume one, number two of 1923, uh, 24 winter, so uh, January time, I suppose. The story was recommended by uh, Terry Illikainen, who is one of my long-term supporters. So thank you, Terry, for that. And thank you for all your support over the couple of years we've been going anyway. So thanks for that. I really do relish recommendations from readers of stories that they've enjoyed. Please feel free to put forward a recommendation. I've now got a spreadsheet that I put them on. All I would say is we need to be careful of copyright. So, you know, Stephen King, probably I'm not going to do The Shining or Salem's Lot. So we've got to be conscious of copyright and we have to be conscious of length because, you know, you think a novel, a novel comes out. I did Dracula for members only, you know, and that's something like 12 hours. And it takes me probably two hours to produce an hour. Yeah, it's a long time anyway. Let's not get into the maths of it. I have sat down and worked it out at one point trying to work out what my costs are. But um, I'm only, I have a vague idea about that. Anyway, back to the story. We don't know much about the writer, so Beyond the Door. So it seems to me that Beyond the Door is one of those stories that leaves it up in the air, whether the narrator is insane or haunted, although on balance he's probably insane. And we think of other stories that we've read on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast, particularly The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, or The Hola, Le Hola by Guy de Montpassant or The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions. Onions, not Onions, but Onions. And so it's a, it's a relatively common sub-genre in this period. Now, an interesting thing was happening when we had the, um, we had the Gothics of the 18th century, 
Castle of Otranto, etc., the monk, and the supernatural occurrences there were not actually rationalised. And then in the Victorian period, in early 20th century, this was the great age of reason. And so what happened was a lot of the stories tended to get scooby-dooized. That's a good word, isn't it? And they had a rational explanation. So what we find is lots of stories where the ghost isn't really a ghost, you pesky kids. Uh, or in this case, a little bit more subtle, because remember, you know, you had Freud in the 1890s, the growth of psychoanalysis, the growth in pop culture of the idea of the subconscious and psychology. Most Victorian people, ordinary Victorian people, would, wouldn't have thought about having thoughts and unconscious impulses and all this kind of stuff. But clearly by 1924, this is infecting popular culture and it starts coming up in stories. So this, the explanation for this, it seems to me, is that it's a psychological manifestation of his guilt. So it's worth looking into what that is about. Why is he guilty? And why, or why do I think that, first of all? So first of all, he's, he places a pretty strong clue that this girl, this poor Australian girl, you can only be grateful that she didn't actually speak in the story, or as well as my American accent, you would have got my Australian accent as well. So uh, for those of you who like my accent, you've gone, oh no, I wish he would have spoken. But there are other people, believe me, who are not keen. Never mind. But anyway, it didn't happen. So anyway, so she nuzzles his hand like a dog. And um, he then has visions of a dog. This is the giveaway. He sees some kind of monster, almost Lovecraftian, some grey thing that comes out of the the cellar. Of course, you know, psychoanalysts would have a field there with that. A, a dark spirit arises from the depths of the subconscious or the unconscious, come on, uh, and sits there on the well. And he's the only one who hears these supernatural things. The housekeeper doesn't hear any of this. And he has basically auditory and visual hallucinations. So we might, we might diagnose him as, I can't help doing this, you know, uh, as um, somebody with a depression with psychotic features. And, and I, you know, it's hard to say he's probably quite stressed. I would, I would also reckon he's got Asperger's syndrome. syndrome. Uh, I mean, he's obsessed with insects and he puts them and he's quite weird and he puts them and people who are monomaniacs about particular subjects which tends to go with that diagnosis we've all got traits of it absolutely you should look around this room now all these skulls what's going on you know and and he and he cannot be diverted from his purpose and this love woman comes and threatens his purpose and that produces massive anxiety in him and, I, and for a minute, I wondered whether he killed her. And I think that's sort of a possibility. The, the detective talks about how she was covered in dirt. And the coroner has his views. The coroner feels that actually that didn't happen, that she probably killed herself after being re re repulsed by him. Not repulsed, repudiated, rebuffed. That's the one by him. And uh, But then he is haunted by the guilt that he should have accepted her. And probably we may guess that he realises his monomania about uh, entomology is unhealthy. This could be what this story is about. It could be about how we can eschew, I'm, all, I'm coming with all these words today, human contact and human relationships and healthy human relationships for uh, and love, yeah, because we put our uh, neurotic drives first. We must, we must study bugs, we must pin them, we must write scientific studies, you know, I must do podcast episodes. Sheila, no, we're not going out. I must, girls, no, I can't see you. I've got to do a podcast. Mm. So uh, it could be about that, that human contact's always a good thing. There's lots of actually themes when you dig. I think also that uh, Paul Souter was a pr predominantly a crime writer and so the, the crime comes a bit easier. So what we've said is, 
in the 20th century, they were looking for rational explanations and, and not just a pure Scooby-Doo of mechanical tricks, but of um, psychological explanations of what he was seeing. So I think that is a feature of the stories in this period that we see. And we've had our psychological horror, the girl on the train and stuff like that as well. So this this continues. There was a time when Freudian theory was everywhere, but uh, I think it's waning now, particularly in stories. Um, hmm. But I think that's what's going on here. And the other feature to say is the, the format. So again, common in older stories that we have a frame. So this frame is, this is the relative who goes looking and is interested in what's happened to his uncle and he finds papers. So very often, like in The Turn of the Screw, Henry James, what you have is, I, this story was told to me one night in my club. E.F. Benson does this loads. Monty James does it as well. Uh, recently just done one of those. James's theory, as I've said, was to put distance to create believability because I think but again, these Edwardian scientists, there was a lot of, this can't be true. There was a big turning against the supernatural. And so you had to kind of make it believable to the hard-headed listener, reader, by putting distance. So perhaps this is where this comes from, this frame. And you don't really see it now, not much. Somebody will produce a book and go, this is a fantastic book. And, you know, but you don't really, I mean, Neil Gaiman and um, Stephen King and um, Kuntz and all sorts of people. Most of the modern horror writers do not use this frame, but it was very common in that period. Now, the problem with it is the converse of what James said. So we may put a veil of time and distance and, and person, I suppose, first person, third person, between us and the horrible events to create credibility. But it lessens emotional impact because we're distanced so it has it has a negative effect as well on the story. I mean, I suppose he gets around this because he actually the the, the um, diary is written first person, so it's through the guy's eyes. So that and you'd find that a lot in modern stories to increase the horror is you put the reader right behind the protagonist's eyes. So he's tried to do that, I think, and and another attempt at that at the end was, I think, when he um, this nephew talks about how how like he is his um, his uncle and so they have bonds of sympathy and i think that is an attempt to bind us closer to the the events because i mean you know if somebody told you uh, you know i went to fiji once and um, i met a man there who told me about what happened to his uncle in 1850 you're like mm, okay it's quite interesting but it doesn't have any emotional impact on me because it's too distant anyway so n neat little story though um, I do love these pulp pulp things, and I had considered doing the Dashiell Hammett and uh, Raymond Chandler stories because I love the voice that they're done in, not not the accent I mean, but the the way it's spoken. Love I love all that. And funnily enough, as a digression, somebody was talking to me about Blade Runner last night. You, you remember the theatrical, not the director's cut, but the first one that came out in the cinemas. Uh, we had that very, you know, L.A. Confidential, Maltese Falcon, narrator's voice, you know, there he was in Chinatown again. I absolutely loved that. And in the director's cut, they thought it was a bit cheesy. I think Ridley Scott got it taken out, but I actually really loved it. Anyway, there we are. Story, story, story. So here we are. This is the first one I've recorded in 2022. It is the 2nd of January, 2022, when I'm recording this. It is sunny. It's not even that cold. 
I hope you had a good new year. And if you're listening in May 2026, then you'd be like, yeah, it was okay. But it's a very fresh in my memory. I had a nice meal with my mother and two girls yesterday and uh, I'd gone out with Sheila on New Year's Eve uh, to a, an Italian restaurant. It was very nice. In Yeah, anyway, never mind. So what else to say? Yeah, everything's good. This I just did my annual review. I do... Um, Another thing I got really into was August Bradley and Notion, and I may have mentioned this, and I'm not as diligent as I was, but I still measure loads of stuff and record it. And I do my, um, I record things every day. I do a weekly review, I do a monthly review, a quarterly review, and an annual review. So yesterday, when I got back from the meal, I sat down and did those reviews. It, absolutely, when you look at it like that, two things jump out. I'm not as healthy as I was last year, my blood pressure's up and my weight's up. And that's due to eating sweets and cakes and drinking alcohol. So that's all going by the by now. January, no alcohol, low carb. I was, my daughters are vegetarians, so I had thought about that because I've been watching lots of animal videos on YouTube over the new year. And I'm like, oh, you know, there we are. I don't want to really eat them. This will get comments. And yeah, but the annual, but so I noticed that my health has gone down, but we can sort that out. My, my, the income from the podcast, this has been a tremendous year for me, really. After doing stuff for many years, writing and putting stuff on, earning pennies, really now this year, probably looking back and you don't know how the future is going to go. Things can, you know what they say, value can go up as well as down. As they warn you, nothing is certain in life, but I could probably give up my nursing job. I work three days and I also do some private work as well. So probably I'm working about four days a week, mainly prescribing these days. Do a bit of therapy, which I enjoy. You can imagine. So I could, but am I brave enough? I might give it three months and see how it's going to go. I'll, I'll finish this by thanking you all, all you people who listen and watch on YouTube and listen on different podcast apps and buy my audiobooks and and buy my ready books as well, you know, my paperbacks and ebooks. You've given me you've given me a massive gift really. So thank you for being there. Thank you for for boosting me and giving me confidence and believing in me really. So I really do mean that. Thank you very much. And I suppose the final thing I want to say is this. You may be yourself a creative of some kind. So you may draw, you may make music, you may sing, you may dance, you may cook, you may produce whatever, the knit, whatever's coming out of you. And all of us, I think most of us, you never say all, we want an audience, don't we? We want, we want an audience. We, art to me is communication. That's what it is. It's about reaching somebody at a non-conversational level. And, and finding a, a common humanity with certain people because we tend to have taste. You know, I don't like the beanies that you like. But, and I'm trying not to drift too much from this, this short but sweet message. If you are a creative, then I just want to say from my own experience, I mean, I started writing when I was a kid. I sent my first novel out to be published when I was 21 and I'm 60. The internet has allowed us success that we wouldn't have had before. The message that was given to us was in previous years, whether we were musicians or writers or whatever, dancers or whatever, that you're not successful because you're no good. And that clearly the internet has shown us, YouTube, podcasts, Kindle, 
have, have shown us that now we can get access to our own audiences. We don't have to rely on gatekeepers. And think of the stupendous errors they've made. Now, whatever you think of these books, I mean, Stephen King's books, uh, J.K. Rowling's books, um, t- uh, Tolkien, well, they nearly didn't publish The Hobbit. Uh, and people who turned the Beatles down and people like that, you know, they don't know the gatekeepers. They're just people like us making guesses. And they guess wrong. And if they don't back you, that doesn't mean you're no good. It just means they've guessed wrong. And if you persist, and I was reading another quote by Seneca, this um, Roman author, and he said, um, time shows truth. So my the lesson from me is just keep on doing it. And it can be hard sometimes because if you're getting no audience or and you inevitably will come across people who hate your stuff. And some people are really rude about your stuff and very bit brutal you if if you keep on doing it and you perfect your craft and you get better as you do it more you will find an audience and you will find people who appreciate you and the people who don't appreciate you can go and listen to something else or watch something else or read something else you know or eat something else or wear some other clothes or they can go off and do that there's plenty of stuff out there so keep on keeping on and as the welsh say Diligent chipping breaks the stone, okay? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?